Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope y'all are having an amazing, fantabulous start to your week. You can make my Monday even more fantabulous if you leave a five-star review and leave some downloads and a follow on Apple Podcast. If you are there on Apple Podcast, if you're joining us on Overcast, you guys tend to uh, download a lot of the stuff we do. I don't understand it, but appreciate it nonetheless. So, With that being said, we've got a fun show planned for you today. I want to talk a little bit about Phil Mickelson's psychology coming up a little bit later because the sociology of Phil Mickelson and psychology around this victory is an interesting thought experiment when we talk about why do we love sports, why do we get super interested in sports, why do we root for sports, what piques our interest more than other things because I have a feeling that later on in Monday, when if you're watching some other programming besides the Take It Easy podcast, I expect that a lot of people are going to care a lot about Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship at 50 years old, which in and of itself is cool enough. But it's interesting as to why people care the way that they do about Phil Mickelson still here in 2021 when other golfers like Brooks Kepka and Jordan Spieth and Dustin Johnson are just as good as Phil Mickelson was at his peak, but also are not as famous as Phil Mickelson and not even close. So it's an interesting sociological experiment. I want to talk about that later on. Um, But first off, other than douchey hockey guy who wants to tell you quickly about how the Winnipeg Jets are uh, shooting down Connor McDavid, which once they officially knock out Edmonton will talk about Connor McDavid and the uh, Edmonton Oilers because that story deserves a day in an uh, all by itself, either probably like Wednesday or Thursday. But other than Winnipeg being up 3-0 in a series that we thought Edmonton would win rather easily and the Boston Bruins closing out the uh, f- the Washington Capitals or a uh, Suns victory in game one over the Lakers. I'm going to save some talk on that series because I know House of Phoenix Suns is going to want to talk about that at some point later in the week. We can hit that music so that we can talk about some NBA madness over the past, well, I guess just Sunday.
So how about them Atlanta Hawks, ladies and gentlemen? Warriors South is finally producing the fruits of their labor. Travis Schlentak, the orchestrator behind Warriors South, went from being fired to being executive of the year in the NBA. And last night in a 107-107 tie, Trey Young hit the game-winning floater over the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden, which apparently matters to an older generation besides ourselves. But why would it matter to us when we are 20 years into the Knicks irrelevant train and the only three memorable events of my lifetime from the New York Knicks that are good are them getting Carmelo Anthony, one week of Linsanity, and when they dropped balloons and confetti for winning a single first-round playoff game against the Philadelphia 76ers. That is what I remember positively of the New York Knicks of the last 20 years. They've been a totally irrelevant franchise that now has organizational competence at the very least and has a really fun superstar in Julius Randle. We've talked about this before with Cam, and we've talked about it before on other platforms about how There's never been an incentive for the Knicks to change because they always make money. And now Dolan's becoming a little bit more of a hands-off-y owner as he also looks like he has a hand in the firing of the GM and coach of the New York Rangers who look to be highly successful and highly competent. But the New York Knicks made the playoffs as a four seed. They got to host the Atlanta Hawks in a series that we dubbed the second TV game. And although I didn't watch any of the game, I did watch it. In brief passing on a TV at a bar yesterday on Sunday, and that is uh, the perfect encapsulation of the Hawks-Knicks series. It's a series that you can watch when you're passing by a bar on the middle of enjoying your Sunday afternoon. But, of course, I caught the end of the game, and of course, you got to witness Trey Young put up an epic floater with .9 seconds left to beat the New York Knicks in what I can only describe as the coming out party for Warriors South. Welcome to the limelight, Warriors South. You may not end up winning the series, although winning game one in New York goes a long way when you look at those two rosters and say, yeah, they're pretty much about the same roster. Um, Trey Young, Julius Randle being the single superstars, building out a core of solid players, whether it be Gallinari or uh, the apparently white rapper Bogdan Bogdanovich. I think there was no more funnier storyline last week other than Tony LaRussa than Bogdan Bogdanovich dropping a rap mixtape on uh, and, and shouting out J. Cole in his rap mixtape. Um, I think that was uh, that was funny. Not not quite like our hip hop tape with uh, Drew Locke QB1 here for the ponies, which you can find on an older episode if you want to hear me be a white ass rapper um anyways so you've got Bogdanovich you've got Danilio Gallinari (laughs) I was like anyways back to Atlanta Hawks analysis and uh three pointers and, and offensive wind shares and free agent signings so from the New York Knicks side you've got obviously Julius Randle being the the core foundational piece but you've got Mitchell Robinson and RJ Barrett averaging 20 points a game and Derek Rose giving you about a dozen or so off the bench. Interesting situation for the New York Knicks going forward. Hashtag Knicks tape. Uh, even if it's not this year, because 
the Heat should have been in that 4-5 series. We've talked about this before. The Heat should have been the team that gets smacked by the 76ers in the second round. Uh, the Knicks and the Hawks, both of them making the second round and getting swept by the Sixers is just both of them like, we're good. Hands, hands down, we're good. The fact that we won a playoff series this year, like, we're good. And the Hawks are on their way to making that happen, thanks to the heroics of maybe my favorite player in the NBA and the first child of the Steph Curry generation, one Trey Young. So shout out to the Hawks. Shout out to Warriors South. They are on their way to some success. Also, shout out to the Wizards for giving uh, Philadelphia a run for their money in the first game. They didn't end up winning, but there's no shame in that, Washington. You are grossly outmatched. You held your own with Joel Embiid and the Sixers, and even if you didn't come out with a win, no shame in that. Great games all around by that team from Westbrook to Davis Bertans and Rui Hachimura and, of course, Bradley Beal. Well done, well done by the Washington Wizards. Uh, by the way, I will mention one thing for that Lakers Sun series. Just ridiculously suffocating defense played by the Phoenix Suns. That was a weird ass game where Phoenix ended up, I think, scoring like 97 points, but only allowing 87. So Phoenix ended up in, with themselves. A lot of their offense was coming from Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, and Ayton. Hell of a game for DeAndre Ayton, like 20 points, 15 rebounds. If you haven't been watching much Suns basketball, like I haven't since the NBA bubble, like that was a coming out party for one DeAndre Ayton. Not just the, the Hawks weren't the only team that had coming out parties yesterday. Uh, the, 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 the number one pick picked before Luka Doncic, DeAndre Ayton, who is the third best player on the second best seed, He's, he's like the, the third of the big three on the second best team in the Western Conference. DeAndre Ayton was awesome yesterday. And that suffocating defense of the Phoenix Suns held the, the big three of the Lakers, which the big three of the Lakers we've been joking for years now is LeBron, Anthony Davis, and whoever the third person ends up being that day. Someone usually goes for 20, whether it's Danny Green or KCP or Kuzma, or in this case, Dennis Schroeder. Um, that big three of the Lakers combined for 45 points, which I'm guessing has to be one of the lowest totals of the season for the Lakers with LeBron having 18 Schroeder, 14 Anthony Davis, 13. Like I imagine that had to be one of the lowest totals of the season for the Los Angeles Lakers of the big three. Cause they also only scored like 87 points and that's gotta be one of their lowest totals of the season. So just suffocating defense by the Phoenix suns. To win that game, like I said, we'll save some of that Suns talk for our boy House of Phoenix Suns one of these days down the road. But the main topic I wanted to talk about was the Utah Jazz. Because the uh, the Jazz plays on, uh, as the old saying goes. But the Utah Jazz are uh, the number one seed who is certainly an unproven team. And number one seeds historically when they're unproven teams are often those who get lucky with injuries throughout the beginning of the regular season. And it feels like the Utah Jazz are no exception to this rule. The Utah Jazz are one of those cliche teams that we think can be letdowns. I've seen a number of memes that you're like comparing them to the 2015 Atlanta Hawks with their eight deep roster and 
some great players across the board, but ultimately won't make it further than like the second round of the conference finals. Second round could be because of matchups. Cause as we talked about on yesterday's podcast, which by the way, if you're listening to this on Apple right now, just give it a little download for me real quick. Um, as we talked about yesterday, the Clippers are the second best team in net rating, the second best team in strength of record. They're fourth in offensive rating. They're eighth in defensive rating. And, uh, the Utah Jazz, as great as they are, are not quite that. Um, and the Utah Jazz would be a team that we would point to and say, yeah, they could probably end up losing to the Clippers in the, the second round, although it would be an epic matchup. Uh, Utah this year has the best strength of record in the NBA. They're third in offensive rating, fourth in defensive rating, best net rating in the NBA. So Utah is really good. But then we look at their roster and we're like, okay, one, they were, they were remarkably healthy and outperformed their projected win total by about, let's see, about five games they outperformed their projected win total this year. So that's something. Um, and the fact that they were remarkably healthy, which plays into exactly where we are in game one against the Memphis Grizzlies because the Utah Jazz lost their guy, Donovan Mitchell to a sprained ankle and he's had a sprained ankle for a while. In fact, on Thursday, right before the series, he's like, yeah, I don't think people are leading on enough just how bad this injury actually is. And he didn't play in game one. Donovan Mitchell was a a scratch in game one with that ankle injury. So, you know, you have to change up your lineup a bit and, you know, Joe Ingles gets the start instead of his traditional coming off the bench and, he only had 11 points in 33 minutes, which, you know, it's a tough break. And the Jazz had to go to their eight deep roster instead of their 10 deep roster, which they they tend to run the 10 deep roster more often. Because again, like I said, I think eight deep for Utah, which would be Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Boyan Bogdanovich, Mike Conley, Royce O'Neal, uh, Joe Ingles. Wait, did I mention Donovan? So Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Boyan Bogdanovich, Mike Conley, Royce O'Neal, uh, and then off the bench, Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles, and Derek Favors, and then the other two being Yorgis uh, Nyang and, uh, you know, fill in the 10th person. Sometimes it's Mie Oni. Uh, sometimes it's, um, what's the name, Azabuki. Like, fill in the 10th person if you want it. Maybe they just go nine with Yorgis Nyang, but... Basically, that eight, those eight that I mentioned before, probably the best eight deep that the league has, and a part, a big part of that is that they have one of the best benches in the league with Clarkson, Ingles, and Favors. But they are already banking on a team where Donovan Mitchell is their best offensive player. And to be fair, Bogdanovich picked up the slack yesterday. Bogdanovich is someone who can create his own shot, like Boyan Bogdanovich, like Chris Middleton is good enough to create his own shot. That dude is really good, and he had 29 points to keep Utah in the game against Memphis. And this is also knowing, going into the game, and this should be the case in every single series, Memphis's second-best player is going to be contained in every single game of the series because Jonas Valanciunas is going up against Rudy Gobert in all of these games, and Rudy Gobert... If he doesn't win Defensive Player of the Year, it'll be a close second. But Rudy Gobert is the best defensive big in the league. And lo and behold, in the first game, Valanciunas, 39 minutes played, had 15 points, 12 rebounds, which is 
you know, about average for Valanchunas when he was playing awesome before this. So then where does their offensive production come from in this game? It came from a third coming out party. We didn't have just one coming out party for DeAndre Ayton, a coming out party for Warriors South in the second game. No, no, no. We had a third coming out party on Sunday. The rare trifecta. How about that? The hashtag StuGots. Um, StuGots Army, shout out if you're listening to this right now. Um, so we had a third coming out party with Dylan Brooks and Dylan Brooks, to be honest, these last eight days have just been a coming out party for Dylan Brooks from guarding Steph Curry in that, uh, that game for the eight seed last Sunday, the last day of the regular season, and then fouling out and Steph Curry going bonkers to him guarding Steph Curry again in the play in round and hitting a big three pointer late in the game to, or was that the Spurs game? The The three-pointer might have been the Spurs game. But anyways, uh, to, to them winning that, to then yesterday dropping 31-7 and seven on the Utah Jazz to help Memphis win game one with an unhealthy Donovan Mitchell. Hell of a game for Dylan Brooks and a hell of a coming out party for them. But for Utah, Obviously, the Donovan Mitchell injury changes things because the math changes when Donovan Mitchell is injured. Utah is not the same roster, and they don't play the same style of basketball. And there's that inferiority complex that currently exists with the Utah Jazz. Very few of us trust the Utah Jazz, even if we should. The numbers suggest that, like the Los Angeles Clippers, the Utah Jazz are a very good team. Now, Donovan Mitchell's injury throws everything for a loop here. And when healthy and when presently constructed the way they are with Joe Ingles being one of the best in true shooting percentage and Bogdanovich being able to create his own shot and the career revitalization of Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson being able to go for 40 off the bench, even though yesterday Jordan Clarkson only had 14 points coming off the bench, but he did play 30 minutes. The Utah Jazz are closer than most people think. As are now in their fourth playoff run with this current iteration of their team. They beat the Clippers in 2017 when Donovan Mitchell was a rookie, and we had that epic duel between Mitchell and Ben Simmons for the Rookie of the Year that led to the creation of that amazing rookie jacket that I am presently staring at in my closet right now. So Donovan Mitchell had that incredible rookie year. He averaged over 20 a game, or I think he averaged like 19 a game. He won the dunk contest. Like Donovan Mitchell is really good right out the gate at a time when Rick Pitino said that he needed an extra year of college and then went to the NBA and averaged 19 points a game. And I've always talked about like Donovan Mitchell was given a perfect opportunity to succeed because he was immediately succeeding Gordon Hayward. And although the old saying goes, you never want to be the guy who replaces the guy, you want to be the guy who replaces the guy who replaces the guy, if that makes sense. Um, Donovan Mitchell came in and they said, we're going to get you 20 shots a game. And he's like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to get 20 shots a game, because they just ran the same offense and plugged him right into the Gordon Hayward role. 
And this was back when they had Ricky Rubio with their iteration of the team. And then they traded, well, then they lost Ricky Rubio to free agency to Phoenix. And they traded for Mike Conley with the Memphis Grizzlies, whom they're now playing in the playoffs, which has got to sting a little bit for Mike Conley, isn't it? That he's now got to go up against the Grizzlies in the first round of the playoffs. But they they didn't give up very much. They gave up uh, basically a first-round pick and Grayson Allen and some salary fillers to go get, uh, to go get obviously, uh, Mike Conley and take on that contract for a couple years. But back then in 2017, that was the team that had, or I'm sorry, this 2018. 2017 was Gordon Hayward. 2018 was the first Donovan Mitchell run. And they beat the Clippers in seven games in the first round. It was one of those series, much like the Hawks and Knicks, that was like a second TV series. But when Utah won and got smacked out by the Houston Rockets in like five games in the next round, they were like, we're good. We're good here. (laughs) We made it to the second round of the playoffs in our first year with Donovan Mitchell. And Rudy Gobert is taking the reins as the best player of the team. Like, yep, we're good here. We're chilling right now. So. They made that run in 2018. 2019, they made the second round and got bounced by the Warriors. This is when Kevin Durant got hurt, and they were back to being Steph, Clay, and Draymond, and Iguodala was still there, and they ended up, I think, sweeping the Utah Jazz in the second round in 2019. So they went second round exit, second round exit. Donovan Mitchell keeps getting better. This is the thing that's always been cool about Donovan Mitchell, is that in his career... Donovan Mitchell has gone from every single year just gets a little bit better, just a little bit better year over year. So for example, rookie year averaged 20 and a half points next year, 23.8 next year, 24 year after that 26.4. He just gets a little bit better every single year. Three point field goal percentage, 34%, 36%, 37%, 39%. He just gets better little by little every single year. He takes a few more shots every year as he becomes a focal point of the offense more. But Donovan Mitchell has always just gotten a little bit better every single year. Look at his rebounding numbers. 3.7, 4.1, 4.4, 4.4. Assist numbers. 3.7, 4.2, 4.3, 5.2. He just gets better every single year. And now he's a 25, 24-year-old all-star for the Utah Jazz, who matters a whole lot to their offense, and he's definitely their best player. He was cleared to return and didn't end up playing over his ankle injury that, as he said on Thursday, which we didn't mention on our podcast, he said it's like worse than most people realized. So... Donovan Mitchell kind of like plugs in wherever you want to plug him in to the equation here, but Donovan Mitchell gets better little by little by little every single year. So even if he had been healthy, and I'm not saying game one is a representative sample size, it's an 8-1 series. I expect Utah will win that series ultimately in the end, even if it has to go six games. We'll have more to talk about once more games get played in that series too, but Back to the storyline of their fourth playoff run together. Utah had been bounced in 2018 in the second round. Bounced in the second round by the Warriors, eventual Western Conference champions, 
the second year in a row in 2019. Last year in the bubble, they had a 3-1 lead over the Denver Nuggets and could have, should have, would have been the team that was a second round exit that maybe just maybe would have beaten the Clippers had they gotten to the series last year. But it was an epic first round series between the Nuggets and Jazz. Like we had 50 point game from Mitchell, 50 point game from Jamal Murray. He averaged like 44 or 45 in a three game stretch. And then we had the terrible game seven that ended up being like 80 to 79 and Mike Conley having a rim out game winning buzzer beater to send Utah. So if it weren't for a half an inch, Utah could have, should have, would have been in the second round last year. And and talent wise, they were a second round exit team. This year, I qualified them again in the second round exit category during the season. I felt like the Lakers and Clippers were a tier ahead of them. And I still feel that way. Like I feel like because the Lakers and Clippers have two players better than Utah's best player. You could argue Paul George, but you still the, the, the argument is there that they have two players better than Utah's best player. At the very least for the Clippers, they have one in Kawhi Leonard. It feels like the Clippers are still a bit ahead of the Utah Jazz. And in that hierarchy that we've talked about for the past few weeks about a transition phase between the old stars and the new stars, Donovan Mitchell is going to end up being a tweener between the new stars and the babies. Once that generation starts to establish itself, Donovan Mitchell is going to be a little bit of a tweener between the two. Rudy Gobert, firmly entrenched in his prime right now. like He's one of these new people who surprisingly finished fifth in the league in, in uh, win shares per 48 last year. So Rudy Gobert may still be the face of that team. Both made the all-star team, but I think Rudy Gobert doesn't get that same kind of love, even from me, just because he's a bit of a liability on offense, but defensively there there's nothing quite like Rudy Gobert in the NBA. So Donovan Mitchell is very clearly their best offensive weapon. Rudy Gobert might be their best player because he's the best defensive player in the NBA. So Utah has been together four runs now with this current team. And this is the peak of said Utah Jazz runs. The fact that they're the number one seed, the fact that the Lakers and Clippers both could end up faltering and all three of them ended up losing their game ones, which is just kind of funny to think about in the West where you have now all of the lower seeds and the Suns winning their game ones, which is just going to make for utter chaos in the Western Conference. If you wanted chaos, I said at the top, I have no idea what's going to happen in the West. You're getting your chaos because the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Jazz all lost in game one. Um, And they're the three teams that I would say Lakers and Clippers are the championship elites in the West. But the Utah Jazz could slip through the cracks very easily right now. The Lakers are the seven seed. The Clippers are the four seed that's losing to the Mavericks right now. And we talked yesterday, the Clippers are actually pretty good, but they could very easily slip through the cracks. Utah can very much make the conference finals, but after the Lakers and Clippers, They are definitely next in line to win the Western Conference. And if there is ever a year where they can slip through the cracks and make it to the NBA Finals, even if they end up losing to the Memphis, or sorry, losing to, that that would be sad if they lose to the Memphis Grizzlies. But if they lose to the Sixers, they lose to the Bucks, they lose to the Nets because they're totally outmatched, who cares? If Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert make the NBA Finals, 
that's going to be a, a story to tell for a lifetime for the Utah Jazz. The only way they're going to become real championship contenders is by getting one of these top players of their generation. And Rudy Gobert is right there, but he's kind of in that next tier of guys, right? Like, so I think then I said, actually, I wrote this down. This is funny. I wrote this down Saturday night, May 22nd, and I want to share it right now in my notes. I think Memphis might go up 2-1 before Utah comes and slams the door on them. And Utah could end up beating the Los Angeles Clippers. That is that is no, I'm not lying to you. I would never lie to you except when I do lie. But from my notes, from the Utah Jazz story, from Saturday, May 22nd, I think Memphis might go up 2-1 before Utah comes and slams the door. And Donovan, this was before knowing Donovan Mitchell wasn't going to play in game one, before knowing that Dylan Brooks would have a coming out party at the end of game one. I think Memphis might go up 2-1 before Utah comes and slams the door on them, and Utah could end up beating the Clippers. And although they do meet the traditional mold of, like everyone keeps calling them the 2015 Hawks, the traditional mold of one seeds who are unproven, this team has been together for a long time. This is not like the Bucks in 2019 when they were one seed and Giannis won MVP, but other than a first round drubbing as a, as an eight seed with Jason Kidd, like it was their first playoff run as the current iteration of the team. This Utah Jazz team has been together for four playoff runs now and four pretty intense playoff runs. At least the core of the team, which would be Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Joe Ingles, Bogdanovich, and Mike Conley for now two playoff runs, and Jordan Clarkson for his second playoff run. This core of the Utah Jazz have been together for a while. And so to that point, I think they could very much slip through the cracks, but I also think, and I wrote it down then, I think Memphis might go up 2-1 on them, and they win the series, but in order to get to Jazz in six, you have to have Memphis win a couple of games in there. All right, let's talk about Phil Mickelson. Because Phil Mickelson is an interesting, interesting conversation about the sociology of sports and sports fandom. Because I am firmly... uh, So this is something I was learning about and reading about on Friday, and then we got a perfect situation with Phil Mickelson. So backstory, for those of you who may not be golf people or have been living under a rock for the past few well, I guess day. So Phil Mickelson at 50 years old won the PGA championship, which is the second major of golf's calendar, but used to be the fourth major of golf's calendar, both on the schedule and in terms of importance, but a major nonetheless, you win the Wanamaker trophy, everyone's happy. So Phil Mickelson ends up winning the PGA championship in pretty resounding fashion. Like there were a couple times where he was tied with Brooks Kepka, and it was interesting, but for the last hour and a half, it felt like a a red carpet coordination for Phil Mickelson. And you had 50,000 people storming behind him on the fairway to witness one of the great moments in the history of golf when 50-year-old Phil Mickelson wins, becoming the oldest major champion in the history of the sport, going back to like people from the 1800s, 
who were 46, but 46 in the 1800s is a very different kind of 46 than being 50 today. But anyways, Phil Mickelson wins his sixth major about 10 years after winning his last major. And it's a fun story for everyone involved. And it's a fascinating experiment for the sociology of sports. Because for those who don't know anything about Phil Mickelson, Phil Mickelson was the second best golfer at a time, at the time of Tiger Woods, at the peak of Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson was the second best golfer in the world. He had started on the scenes in the 1990s, going to some professional tournaments here and there, but Phil Mickelson doesn't win his first major until 2004. And 2004 is right in the heart of Tiger Woods mania. This is at the time where Tiger Woods is face of Cadillac. He's the face of Nike golf, but really Nike as a whole. He's like one of these, at the time where Nike wasn't getting the star athletes in basketball, Tiger Woods was probably the face of Nike at this time. He Tiger Woods might very well be the most famous man in America in 2004 and by default casual fans are turn are tuning into golf golf is a fascinating experiment for the sociology of the sport because it feels like after thanksgiving 2009 when tiger woods may or may not have been beaten with a golf club by his wife as he drove away and then crashed into a pole and then revealed that he was having about 20 or so extramarital affairs and that he was dealing with sex addiction in a really ugly episode where we did some terrible things to Tiger Woods, where we vilified Tiger Woods and America as a whole had to look back at like, dude, is this who we want to be in terms of like judging celebrities and ruining people's lives and making them, putting them on the pedestal of the most famous person to the most infamous in like that fast because of moralities that may or may not agree with our own. But anyways, so it's golf is a fascinating experiment because it's like from 2000 not for those who have lived through all of this and i've technically lived through the tiger woods mania i was young at the time but still one of my earliest memories was coming home from school in the second grade and watching tiger woods win the u.s open at tory pines um, which was his last major until he won the masters in 2019 but golf is a fascinating experiment in the sociology of why do we watch sports Because I hypothesize, and Kate Fagan talks about this too when it comes to the WNBA, that it's not because men can do windmill dunks and women can't. It's not because golf was infinitely better in the 2000s, but it's not now. But the financial investments that are made in certain sports, the storylines we can draw to, and the tribalist nature of fandoms create the rallying points around sports. It's why the women's world cup is one of the most watched events in America because we get attached to the players on the American team and we watch the American team that is really good and wins a lot. And we get really invested in those players. It's what allows Megan Rapino and Abby Wambach and Alex Morgan to get national endorsement deals and to be in commercials and it's and to be celebrities in the american like ethos like women's athletes being 
celebrities in the ethos that aren't Serena Williams. And Serena Williams is another interesting case because, again, you add stakes and storylines and we get so ingrained in the storylines of who we're talking about, whether it's the Williams sisters, whether it's Megan Rapinoe, or whether it's Tiger Woods. And golf is an interesting sociological experiment with this idea that, and the hypothesis that stakes and storylines drive our entire interest in sports. And when Tiger Woods was really good, everyone knew a little bit about golf. It's the same thing with cycling. If cycling had been a uniquely American sport, I think the similar type thing would have happened with Lance Armstrong, where everyone got really into cycling. And then Lance Armstrong gets caught for doping and everyone hates cycling again because cycling is really boring. And golf is this perfect sociological experiment because post 2009, apart from the people who are really into golf, and I consider myself a casual golf fan, like I, the Lakers Suns game was on the second TV so I could watch Phil Mickelson yesterday. Like Phil Mickelson was very much dominating the storyline yesterday. And Phil Mickelson, at the time Tiger Woods was the most famous person in America, Phil Mickelson really knew how to market himself because he was the second best golfer in the world at the time of Tiger Woods. He is undoubtedly a Hall of Famer, but to say that there haven't been other Phil Mickelsons is disingenuous. To say there aren't three or four Phil Mickelsons right now would be disingenuous because Rory McIlroy was as good, if not better, than Phil Mickelson in the early 2010s. And Dustin Johnson is as good, if not better, than Phil Mickelson, even though he's only won two majors. Brooks Kepka's won four majors. Jordan Spieth has won three, and he's very clearly, as at the t- in, from 2015 to 2017, very clearly as good, if not better, than Phil Mickelson during that stretch of time. And Phil Mickelson is the exact same situation because Phil Mickelson won the PGA Championship in 2000. Phil Mickelson won all five of his majors from 2004 to 2010. Phil Mickelson won all of his majors in a six-year time frame that happened to align with the pinnacle of Tiger Woods being the most famous man in America. So if more people are watching golf than ever before, even if they're tuning in to see Tiger Woods win, they're also probably tuning in to watch Phil Mickelson win. Just because they are getting attached to the stakes of Tiger Woods and learning and getting engulfed and infatuated with the storylines of Phil Mickelson. And it helps that from 2004 to 2010, Phil Mickelson won five majors. And so... Phil Mickelson was also very good at marketing himself as a star. He's lefty. He's fun guy in golf. He is person with some personality and flavor. He has the endorsement lines. Like Phil Mickelson was very good at attaching himself. Tiger and Phil. Phil and Tiger. He's very good at mar- at attaching himself to Tiger Woods. It was a very beneficial marketing strategy that worked because a lot of people were just getting into golf and they're like, Phil and Tiger, Tiger and Phil. We're watching Phil Mickelson win a bunch of majors because he won one in 2004, one in 2005. I should probably just pull up the list here to, to kind of like confirm it. But Phil Mickelson won a lot of majors at the exact same time as Tiger Woods. Phil Mickelson was the second best golfer at the same time as Tiger Woods. And it's fascinating 
because Phil Mickelson was the person in golf who, well, actually, now that I think about it, he won four majors. So Phil Mickelson won four majors from 2004 to 2010. So from 04 to 06, he won three majors. So he won the Masters. He won the 2005 PGA Championship. He won the 2006 Masters. He almost won the U.S. Open in 2006 before having a total collapse at the very end. Phil Mickelson was the second best golfer at the exact same time as Tiger Woods, and that helped make Phil Mickelson famous. And golf stopped being nationally relevant in 2009 when Tiger Woods ends up becoming infamous but Phil Mickelson is still a name well recognized across sports because we're drawn into the storyline of Phil Mickelson it's Phil and Tiger Tiger and Phil these are the stakes and storylines that were created out of golf when Tiger Woods became this guy just dominating all the records in golf and becoming the most famous person in America not just athlete the most famous person in America. And it's like, we got attached to the stakes and storylines and Phil Mickelson has been very good at marketing himself as a star and being famous. Phil Mickelson's not the type of famous where he's going to be invited to red carpets anymore, but Phil Mickelson is very good at still being famous. A big part of that and what he's parlayed it into is these, these match tournaments that everyone gets interested in, whether it's Thanksgiving weekend or being one year ago today, which tells you how far along we've come in the pandemic. One year ago today, all of us gathering around our television and 8 million people watching Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Tom Brady, and Peyton Manning play golf. Tiger and Phil have both parlayed that success very well for themselves and parlayed that fame very well to remain nationally relevant a decade after America st- as a whole stopped caring about golf. Like I said, there are still casual golf fans. There are people who get really into golf and people who are really into golf or casual fans like myself know Brooks Kepka is better, is having a better stretch of the last three years. He had a Phil Mickelson type stretch. Phil Mickelson just happened to have it at a time when golf mattered nationally so we could get attached to the stakes and storylines. Brooks Kepka is super fascinating. We've done a whole podcast on Brooks Kepka back at the very end of the beginning of the pandemic. So like February 2020, we did a whole ass podcast on Brooks Kepka. The man is so damn fascinating. And he's not famous. Most people do not know who Brooks Kepka is. They wouldn't have recognized him in those national Super Bowl Michelob Ultra commercials. Like, Brooks Kepka is really cool, but not really famous. Phil Mickelson is really cool, and even at 50, still really famous. And by the way, really rich. Because Phil Mickelson has had countless endorsements and countless brandings and he's had his own line of golf stuff like Phil Mickelson has been very good at using fame and parlaying it into a hugely successful career 
once he had the opportunity. He took the opportunity to be famous, and he's very good at being famous. Which is not to hate on Phil Mickelson. Very good golfer. Just won the PGA Championship at 50. At the same time, both things can be true. Phil Mickelson can be very good at being famous, but it's also very, because we're attached to the stakes and storylines of him and Tiger, Tiger and Phil, this is a revitalization of golf, but Phil Mickelson winning a major at 50 years old is not a revitalization of golf. It's just something that was totally unexpected and something that makes for an amazing storyline that we can talk about on a Monday. And I assume more people will glorify because it's a, it's a, it's a reminder It's a feel-good, it's a nostalgia for the glory days of golf for a lot of people who probably did not watch the tournament yesterday. It's a nostalgia tour for the golf that they used to get really invested in because of the stakes and storylines of Tiger Woods and then, by extension, the stakes and storylines of Phil Mickelson. So it's a longing for a time when they cared about golf. And golf is by no means nationally relevant anymore. Golf is a niche sport in the most specific terms of the word. Golf is a niche sport. And it's really fascinating to see everyone come around and rally around this Phil Mickelson story because it's a reminder of the stakes and storylines that got people really interested in golf. And if golf created more stakes and storylines, and this is the exact same thing as the WNBA and all of these niche sports, The UFC has been really good at this. These thriller fight clubs with the Paul brothers and Floyd Mayweather and Oscar De La Hoya, they've been really good at creating storylines. The UFC, the WWE, boxing, they've been trafficking that for years. They get you really interested in the best fighters because they create storylines and stakes. Championship belts on the line. Bitter rivals. This is their backstory, and this is why they hate this guy. It gets you really invested in the stakes and storylines, and it's why if you meet people who really like wrestling, they really love wrestling. And when you meet someone who really loves baseball, like myself, you really love baseball, and you really love your San Diego Padres. Why? Because we have a fun, flamboyant team that this weekend got a giant SD chain with a little spinny SD logo in the middle, and Fernando Tatis hit a grand slam and two home runs against the Mariners, and he is the highest OPS in baseball and tied for the league lead in homers, even though he missed close to 15 games in a 50-game season. He's played 65% of the games of everyone else, and he's tied for the lead in home runs. Fernando Tatis is dumb and fun, and it gets me really invested in the storylines, and he plays for my favorite team, the most famous Padre who we can get, the most, sorry, the most famous baseball player who we can get invested in the stakes and storylines nationally happens to play for my favorite team. Fernando Tatis is not the best baseball player in the world. He's one of the best. He's one of the best baseball players in the world. He's one of the 20. He's 20 or so best baseball players in the world, but he's only played 162 games. He's played one full season of professional baseball in terms of games. He is not the best baseball player in the world, but he is the most famous baseball player in the world because we are really invested in the stakes 
and the storylines of Fernando Tatis versus baseball. And he's been really good at marketing himself as I want to be the face of baseball, and here's why. Let me just throw this toothpick out, and at five foot eleven, let me just launch four hundred fifty foot home runs on sliders down and away, and it not make sense how I can hit the ball as hard as I do. But that's the thing: we get really invested in stakes and storylines, and it's why the WN. I realize my blind spots on the WNBA, and at the very least, have an open mind to think about changing it because. I'm just not invested in the stakes and storylines because our society diminishes the stakes and storylines in a culture that on my Instagram page, comical sports memes is 91% guys. And on our podcast is 85% guys listening to this podcast. Like I recognize blind spots there with how we do this podcast and how we do these do sports content around gender because Sports content like this is a very male-dominated industry. And of course it is because women weren't allowed to participate in sports for until like 50 years ago. So there's a lot of, of groundwork to be made up. But golf provides an interesting sociological experiment over the weekend when Phil Mickelson wins. Because for all of these niche sports, stakes and storylines matter. And for a lot of people who used to be big sports fans and are still big sports fans around the NFL and the NBA, Phil Mickelson being a winner again probably drew some people in or at the very least compelled them to talk about Phil Mickelson winning because they are really invested in the stakes and storylines of Phil Mickelson. And that is a fascinating sociological experiment that I think can be applied to all sports because if we invest in stakes and storylines of golf and Brooks Kepka, I think Brooks Kepka could be as famous as Phil Mickelson if we invested in his storylines and if we invested in Jordan Spieth's storylines. And to be fair, we did more of it with Jordan Spieth and we did a lot of it with Rory McIlroy, where Rory McIlroy became super famous for being um, an Irish golfer who was winning all these majors early in his career. Rory McIlroy is not the golfer he used to be anymore, but we got super invested in Rory McIlroy when he was good in the early 2010s, when Tiger Woods had just completed his uh, his rehab tour in terms of his public image, but people were still kind of interested in golf. There were still some holdovers from the Tiger Woods era who got really into Rory McIlroy and still were really into Phil Mickelson and Bubba Watson when they were winning majors and masters in the early 2000, 2010s. But now a decade later, the run of Tiger Woods is over. Like you either have people who have decided to not reinvest in stories and they're the only matter if Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson are playing golf, or you have the fans who know how awesome Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson and Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas are and are probably just as good now as Phil Mickelson was at his peak. So Phil Mickelson has been very good at being very famous for a long time. And he was the major beneficiary of being great at the ex exact same time as Tiger Woods being the most famous person in America and the one time where golf was a nationally relevant sport. And now golf is a niche sport in the perfect sense of the word and it's not a bad thing for golf. The only national sport, everyone's becoming a niche sport now. The NFL is the only soap opera that lasts year round. Even basketball is struggling to not become a niche sport even though basketball is really good at getting us invested in the stakes, 
the storylines, and the stars. We feel attached to all the stars because we know most of the stories of these star players in the NBA. The NBA is very good at marketing those stars. Golf is very good at marketing their winners, but they had a gift from the gods of Tiger Woods that made them a nationally relevant sport for a decade. And now a decade removed from that decade, Phil Mickelson, again, who's not quite Tiger Woods, the 2019 Tiger Woods victory drew everyone back in. It was like one of the greatest moments in sports was Tiger Woods making that comeback tour and winning the Masters. And it was the, the, I remember, I'll never forget this. It was the top eight stories the next morning on my newsfeed, Tiger Woods, 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 Tiger Woods. Why was that the case? Because we are really invested in the stakes and storylines and life of Tiger Woods because he's really famous. And if you could be the most famous person in America for any period of time, we're going to keep talking about you and we're never going to stop until you stop giving us a reason to. And Tiger Woods has never stopped giving us a reason to. But Phil Mickelson, who was never the most famous person in America, but he was the guy behind the second most, or he behind the most famous person in America. Phil Mickelson gave people a reason to talk about golf again. Talk out of their ass about golf and try and fill in the details of a decade of not knowing about golf. But it got people really interested because nostalgia is a powerful tool. And it was taking people back to a time when golf mattered and they cared a lot about Phil and Tiger. Tiger and Phil. Phil and Tiger. Tiger and Phil. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping into the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays. Six episodes a week. I don't know what the rest of this week is going to look like, but I know we got playoff basketball, playoff hockey. Um, so Padres on a nine game win streak in the MLB. Maybe we'll have some football talk. Blake Jude will be on at some point. We'll see what else ends up popping in our way over the next few days. But I do know that in the meantime, you should take it easy, support all the stuff that we do here and, uh, enjoy the rest of your Monday, Tuesday, or however, and whenever you're tuning in to the take it easy podcast, take it easy, everybody. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.